I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 196 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, Andrew Frankel, my co-host, and a returning guest this week, Mr. Richard Bremner. Um, Richard, thank you for joining us again. Now, we're getting you back on the podcast because a few weeks ago, um, it was episode 191, for anyone who wants to go back, um, you came on and we discussed British Motor Corporation or British Leyland, Rover. um, And we sort of did a bit of a deep dive into that whole saga. Um, It was a, a reasonably lengthy episode, but there... There's only so much you can say even in an hour and 20 minutes. Um, We wanted to get you back on in part to cover um, a little bit of ground that we didn't get onto last time. But actually, the bulk of this episode is going to be talking about your cars, not least because you've got a handful of British Leyland stuff um, that you can tell us about in all its grizzly detail. Um, But, I mean, we had a really good response to the first episode that we did with you. People, it seems, really enjoyed listening to the tale of BL. Um, I don't think we really covered the sort of demise, the final few years. Um, What what do we need to, to say about that? I mean how spectacularly wrong did it all go and why yeah and also was it was it always doomed from the moment bmw offloaded it yeah was it only ever going to be a question of time or do you think that had it been properly handled there could have been a future yes yeah, so um when bmw offloaded it um it was very likely that the outcome that we got would transpire it's very difficult for what was suddenly had suddenly become a tiny car manufacturer with a a very old product range apart from the rover 75 um and insufficient financial backing to survive i would say it wasn't impossible and there what they needed was a partner which they tried to get with increasing zeal towards the end um or to do some sort of collaborative deal um do we know who they were talking to well uh the ones they publicized were initially china brilliance um and that ultimately fell through and then uh shanghai automotive industries corporation uh, who, of course, now own MG. Um, and when they first started talking, Psyche, as they're more widely known in Britain at any rate, um, were looking to actually buy it as a going concern. Um, but maybe they realised that um, they might be able to get it for far less money and with far less in the way of obligation, if you like, to pension funds or keeping people employed and so on, if they 
uh, waited for it to go broke. That is only speculation on my part. I don't know whether that was actually a deliberate plan. Um, but before that, I believe there were efforts to at least collaborate. So I know, for example, that Fiat um, were interested in them perhaps taking advantage of of uh, the failure, if you like, of the Fiat Stilo, which was a golf competitor nominally and um, a very unsuccessful car, really. Deservedly unsuccessful. Um, <laughs> uh, and the upshot of it being so unsuccessful was that they had a lot of spare capacity um, and they also had a platform that maybe um, Rover could have used. Um, anyway one can speculate on how that might have worked, but obviously it, it didn't come to anything. Um, there might have been other conversations, but I, I, I don't I don't know about them. Okay. Um, it was astonishing some of the things that went on in those last uh, four and a half years. Um, some things were uh, pretty sensible or almost shrewd given the position they were in so they deserve credit for producing mg versions of all the rovers um so the 25 45 and 75 and they were good weren't they they, were... they became well, that's the, the, ZR, the yeah. zs and the zt I mean, didn't they yeah they became the zr zs and zt and obviously you can accuse them yet again of cynical badge engineering but the difference with these cars was that um the chassis were really well developed um and a, a chap called rob oldacre who was heavily involved with that um probably drove that through i mean he was a, a racer and he had been a b bentley development engineer and then he previously worked at rover so he knew a lot about chassis development. I'm sure there were many other people involved with it, but the result was cars that that actually did stack up. And in fact, for a brief period before the um, the 2001 Mini came out, the um, MG ZR, the smallest of them, was the best-selling hot hatch in the UK. Um, wow. Not least because they cleverly offered it with low power engines which may sound counterintuitive but the point was that young people could then insure it yeah so I, 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 I was I was 16 17 I think when those cars were knocking about and to someone my age they were super desirable mm. it didn't matter that it was a rover 25 really you know it looked cool they came in bright colors they had they're, i think they're all yellow wheels they? yeah were, so many of them were yellow yeah they, they, they were cool. yeah. they had sporty body kits yeah. they, they seemed pretty good to drive and then the the zs the bigger one there was a hatch and a saloon wasn't there my uncle had one of each both with the v6 180 wow. horsepower v6 yeah i mean that sounds great now doesn't yeah. it a, a small saloon v6 engine proper sporting yeah. chassis well, fantastic of the three, that was the actually the best handling of the lot. Um, because... Yeah, my uncle still stuck one of them through a hedge backwards at speed. Well, it says more about him, I think. It. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, because it had, I think, double wishbones at the front, I, because it was essentially a Honda, and so it was more tunable than the other two, which had McPherson struts at the front. Um, so it was a really well balanced car, despite a bit v6 up front but it was a lightweight relatively speaking v6 so it had a pretty horrible dashboard but but it was actually the best of the three to drive as a v6 uh, when, um, when can we get anyway, on to the one with the, with the proper engine in it and then yes this is where the madness starts the brilliant Having, madness <laughs> the if total glorious insanity with, well yeah scored a hat trick with those three they then thought, why don't we build a V8-powered um, Rover 75, or MGZT? And so the idea was to put an off-the-shelf Ford, uh, I think, 4.6-litre V8 was, Mustang yeah. engine in the car. But in order to do that, you had to convert it from front-wheel drive to rear, um, which is, you know, you're almost re-engineering half the underside of the car 
and uh, well, more than that, really. That is an um, enormous undertaking for any manufacturer. Yeah, well, in fact, the only manufacturer I'm aware of that has ever done that before is, guess, British Leyland. <laughs> the Triumph 1300, uh, which was a very good car in 1966, uh, was converted to rear-wheel drive to become the Triumph Toledo and ultimately the Dolomite and Dolomite Sprint. Um, actually quite a successful conversion yeah. um, because they sold quite a lot of those cars but you know on the face of it madness in the case of the the zt however um they basically uh gave the contract to develop it to pro drive a good choice um but i don't know what it cost but it would be far in excess of just under the profits well there weren't any profits but the nominal profits on just under a yeah. thousand cars does that include because um, there was an estate and there was a rover wasn't there there was a rover there 75 was. V8. yeah there was a, a, towards the end there was a rover version with a different nose with a sort of audi-esque grill yeah and you could only have that with an automatic transmission i think it was a three-speed or a four-speed oh but quite a crude <laughs> oh box. my goodness I mean, the fuel consumption would have been appalling. But the, in fact, the the MG version really drove very well. And, it was um, absolutely hilarious. I can yeah. remember driving one around Mallory Park in the wet, chasing Anthony Reid. Um, and basically, the limiting factor was just how much laughing you were doing, because you could literally have laughed yourself off the track. <laughs> it would go yeah. basically, you would just sort of tip it into a corner, then turn the steering wheel as far as you possibly could in the opposite direction, and then just wait for events to develop. It was, I, I, I mean, it was, it was pretty rubbish. I can remember there's nowhere because it had that massive transmission in it, which it was never designed to have. Um, there was basically nowhere to put your left foot, um, and it had all sorts of other issues, but. Just as a thing to get in and hoon about, it was it was a right laugh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a pretty uh, keen club for them, which is a good thing because, uh, you know, backup for those is it's there, but um, not the easiest thing to keep on the road. But I mean, their their values uh, hold pretty well, and I'm quite sure that you know that will be a proper classic if it isn't already. I, I, I'm amazed, Richard. You don't already have one in one of your mini no. sheds. I bet you're tempted. Well, you know, there's still time. <laughs> Early days. Did you say a thousand cars? Yeah, I think it's 991. Blimey. But I need to check that. But yeah. All that And I would imagine for... the survival rate is fairly high, even though um, yeah. I witnessed one being rolled on the auto car handling. I've seen the video. <laughs> um, by, I won't name him. It wasn't me. Lotus. <laughs> Yeah, the footage is quite dramatic, isn't it? I have seen yeah. that. Um, yeah. Um, so if you thought that was mad, it wasn't as mad as deciding to suddenly deciding to try to make a supercar or something approaching. Oh my God, I, I forgot. Yeah. No, I didn't. The rights to uh, a data Maso car whose name has gone out of my head um, and re-engineering it. Uh, again with a V8. Wasn't there a create... company called Quail involved in it? Uh, they, oh, I think they were slightly. Um, but yes, they Doesn't produced matter. this carbon-bodied rear-wheel drive V8 coupe called the MGSV. And um, so quite a chunk of it was made in Italy, in Turin. In fact, the quality of the carbon fiber body was extraordinarily good um better than a lot of big names were producing at the time um but they you know must have spent millions redeveloping this did, car did peter which stevens style hadn't it? been developed enough sorry andrew did, 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 did peter stevens style it or have I he just, did he did yeah because it was a good looking thing i thought yeah, I thought less so. <laughs> okay, um, fair enough. There was an Italian development engineer who'd come from De Tommaso who worked on it at Longbridge, and he came up with this wonderful line, which was, it will aggress you, which I think <laughs> <laughs> absolutely summed it up. And, um, yeah, so anyway, uh, I there's a rumour that, in fact, they never actually sold one of them 
properly as a sort of genuine retail sale. Um, obviously, several of them were sold in the end. Um, uh, and I think one. some owners have sort of finished the development off. But, yeah. And what was the yeah. difference? Because there were two, weren't there? There was an SV and there was an SVR. And I think the SVR just must have just had a, a pokier engine in it. And yeah, I, I think so. And I can't even yeah. remember which one I drove because it was a while back. I do remember it wasn't terribly good. And it was when it was new, it was enormously expensive, wasn't it? It was, understandably, in a way, because of the, you know, just the carbon body was... Yeah, but the, uh, but the, but the problem was is that they were somehow expecting people to spend Ferrari money on something with an MG badge, and that was, you know, it was never well, going to happen, was it? That's one problem. Um, we haven't got time to list all the others, <laughs> I would say. Um, but, it, but yeah. no, you're right, though, because why would they go off and try and do something like that when there's a business to be salvaged? Well, I think uh, we're jumping ahead here, but just briefly, I mean, I, I, there was a feeling when the whole thing collapsed that the management had just thought, well, this is never going to work. We might as well have a bit of fun <laughs> while we still can. And various pet projects were pursued. Um, another one being uh, uh, going uh, running in Le Mans with an MG Lola, which, I, in fact, you mentioned Anthony Reid. He was yeah, in he, one yeah. of the teams. And, and, you know, it was a very quick... Uh, I can remember, was no, that one yet? In the yeah, West, that, that night, it was the ran, quickest car on the circuit. Under MG uh, colours, as it were, um, twice, I think, at Le Mans. And it was, as you say, it was very quick and a very promising car it wasn't beyond the bounds of possibility that it could have won its class i think um but that's but the I point it, that... it was in the sort of the junior what we i guess we'd now call lmp2 that's cars. right mm. yeah i think i can't remember what they would have called it at the time but it was basically it was a 675 kilo car yeah. with uh limited power and you know all the big boys were in the 900 kilo um what we call lmp1 category now but as i said in the wet at night it was quicker not just than everything else in its class, but anything else on the track. It had. Yeah. You talked to Anthony Reid about it, it. The car had the most enormous potential, but from memory, it just kept on breaking, didn't it? It just it didn't, did. it just yeah. didn't I mean, have it, the the endurance. Yeah, it hadn't had enough development. But yes, they could have done extremely well with it. Um, but you know whether well, I don't know. Would that have sold more MGZs? I no. don't. I don't know. It might have done. Um, but again, it's just a complete distraction from the basic problem, which was that they were trying to produce a, you know, a serious new car, the almost mythical new medium car, as it was called. Um, so that was going to replace the Rover 45, which was the most aged of the three and um, the most sensible, I would say, in product planning terms to try to replace um, and that may be where, you know, conversations with Fiat and others, uh, you know, may have come about. But in the end, um, they decided to try and use a cut down and cost reduced Rover 75 platform, which in principle is good, you know, could be good because the 75 platform was and is very good. Um, but it's very hard to cut weight and cost out of something like that without severely compromising it or or just not being able to get to where you need to be in terms of packaging say and they never really had the money to e even to engineer that um you might recall the peter stevens design team rover tcv i think it was the concept car shown at geneva which was sort of close to the end of um of MG Rover's life, but and, uh, <laughs> it had a washing machine on display in the boot or, uh, to try to get over the fact that despite being an MG, I think that's, I think it was presented as an M, no, it was a Rover, but it was quite sporty looking, um, that it was practical as well. But <laughs> I, I have to say, I thought it was pretty ugly. Um, and yeah, it never happened. Um, so in the end, they just ran out of money. They, I think they were selling every car at a loss. They owed their suppliers money, and eventually one of the suppliers uh, put their hands up and said, we're not going to send you parts anymore. We can't carry on 
accumulating debt waiting for you to pay and really that's like uh, taking the block out of the Jenga pile that pulls the tower down um, you yeah. can't build a car without whatever bit it was I think mm -hmm. it might have been bumpers that they were going to stop supplying but it doesn't matter what it was really it was a key part there was um, the whole sorry, thing unraveled then there was at the time we have to be careful what we say but there were all sorts of suggestions that this was more than just sort of bad management that there was actually some fairly mm, not great stuff going on um amongst the you know the senior management and that their motives were not as pure as might uh they might have suggested in public is, is, is there something in that was it was it actually all a bit dodge or was it just people trying really really hard um, with limited resources and just ran out of time I think it was a bit of both, weirdly. I think, I mean, I don't think it was, I, I, I can't remember, I don't think it was definitively proven, but there were suggestions that there had been quite a bit of nest feathering, if you like. Indeed. But, um, but I do know certainly some, if not all, of the Phoenix Four worked incredibly hard to try to pull off a deal that would save the business and china probably was the best bet because it was a much more embryonic business uh, industry 20 odd years ago and um you know there was there were attractions um in, in buying into mg rover for china and indeed that's exactly what happened in the end after it went under yeah. um but you know, but by, by that point, there were so few assets left. They'd mortgaged the plant they, and the land it was on. They, you know, they they used up nearly every possible asset they had to try to keep it going. It, you know, it was like run, it, it, playing a monopoly hand when you've only got five quid left, and you're just hoping you don't have any money there. Yeah, it's it's yeah, that, that's where they got to. Um, I did a I did a week's work experience <clears throat> at MG Rover as it was in those last couple gosh, of years. Right. Um, I must have been still in school, so I was probably fifteen or something. Um, because at that time, I thought I'd like to be a car designer, and so I worked my way into a week at MG Rover, and of course, found myself in the engineering department rather than design. Um, and just uh, do you know, I don't really remember a great deal of being there or what I got up, got up to. But I soon changed my mind about what I wanted to do with my my working life. Um, <laughs> decided to go write about cars instead. But it, it, even yeah, it was a curious place back then. I think it. I think the whole thing collapsed a year or two later. Yeah, I mean, I had a slightly strange experience in that. Uh, talking of the MGSV, I did a story where we drove one back from Italy, sort of mimicking those supercar stories but with the point of going to see the place where they made the carbon bodies and talking to people in Italy who were involved with the making and development of it. And and then I drove it back to Longbridge. Um, it turned out the car had been crashed the week before and the suspension geometry was out and hadn't been fixed, um, unbeknown to the press office in, in their defence. And... Um, so it drove even less well than they normally do. But anyway, when I got back there, as it turned out, it was a week to go before the thing collapsed. And I remember just feeling there was an odd atmosphere there. I couldn't pin it down. And I thought it was odd to be feeling that, really. Um, but yeah, it, 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 well, it, as it turned out, it was running out of road. Um, but yes, I mean, that, uh, my view, Yes, it was inevitable, really, unless they could have pulled off some stellar deal, um, which was the odds were against them. But I think the tragedy was that it became so difficult for BMW to carry on. Um, I remember thinking when they bought the whole lot, MG Rover, or, or uh, Rover Group, including Land Rover in 1994, that there couldn't have been a better manufacturer to take it over because they understood brands and they were well resourced and they were an engineering company, you know, as much as a design and marketing company. And 
it all got off to quite a good start and there isn't time to get into the detail of that but the rover 75 i realize i'm a, a big i'm aware i'm a big fan of this car but one of the reasons for that is that it was the first sort of rover product uh or austin rover product bl product whatever you care to call it that had really was properly engineered um for for decades it almost and um a car that never really was appreciated properly when it was on sale um and it was simply a demonstration of what might have been possible as was the l322 range rover that bmw and rover or land rover engineered uh, not the most reliable vehicle it has to be said but a fantastic rebirth of mm. J, uh, of the Range Rover and, so, so, and show you what the potential was. So is this a good time then to move the conversation onto your cars, yeah. your, your BL cars? Because uh, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because you, you have a seventy-five, don't you? I do. Yeah, it's the second one I've owned, um, and the first one uh, was unexpectedly, um, I would say, in terms of value for money, reliability, and enjoyment per pound is the best car I've ever owned. Wow. Uh, not wow. least because it, it cost 800 quid. Yeah. Uh, it was underpriced, I, I realised eventually, um, on Autotrader. And it was a top-of-the-range Connoisseur SE with Connoisseur. pretty much every toy you could get on them, down to a sort of electric rear window blind, <laughs> um, just what you need in Britain. And... Um, uh in fact i turned up to look at this car with a mate um and the dealer turned out to be um some guys operating out of a shipping container on an abandoned petrol station site and they had about 20 totally legit entirely above board um just before Uh, we sort of get into that can we just sort of um just because you know i know a little bit about your about your your car collecting backstory. Can we just sort of establish the credential? Because you are, you know, you're a man who worked at British Leyland, and you're obviously a man who knows an awful lot about what, what went on there. But you've kind of put your money where your mouth is, haven't you? Because more than anybody else I know, you have accumulated British Leyland product. How many BL, BMC or, or, or cars do you think you have owned, and how many do you own now? Well, as a result of you asking me about this, I... I made a list and I was astonished to discover that I have owned 23 uh, cars under wow. this umbrella, of which I still have six. Um, yeah. What was the first? So uh, I, I would never have said that I'd own that many, but uh, but yes, I have. So where, where, So where did it all start? And, and also, can you just, I mean, obviously you've got a personal connection to it because you work there and everything else, but I think that there will be, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, but quite a few people listening to this thinking, why on earth has he decided to own and collect so many cars from a company whose history is best described as checkered and whose product have at times fallen somewhat short of the mark, some might say. Indeed, yeah. Well, um, as I, why have I bought some of these cars? Well, because I'm, I touched on this in the last podcast we did, but um, the reason I wanted to work for BL was because um, I felt they made the most interesting cars in in Britain compared to Ford, Chrysler and Vauxhall, which all made very conventional cars. They were the only one of those four usually to make anything technically or design in or in design terms daring you know like the rover sd1 um i mean there are a lot you, there's a long list of technically very interesting cars that they've made often underdeveloped which is why many of them got a bad reputation but what i admired was the willingness to try something new that would hopefully be better Whereas the chances back then in the 70s and 80s of getting something like that out of Ford was close to nil. Mm. Um, I mean, in the end, Ford became makers of some of the best volume cars in Europe. 
But that uh, was after, wasn't it? A long time. But that was time. after. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. And so some of these cars I've been curious about, but the one, the, the, the car I've owned the most examples of, I discovered, is the, the Austin Allegro, which is ludicrous, really. But, um, ah, it makes sense. Yeah. But the thing is that when I was, I was um, 15, just 15, when that car came out, and by then I'd become really quite obsessed with BL because of, um, because of the Mini. That was what started my interest, as it did for tens of thousands of car enthusiasts. Absolutely. Because the Mini made such an impact for all the reasons we know. So I was very hopeful when the Allegro was on the brink of coming out that this car was going to, you know, start to turn them around. And uh, and then when it actually appeared... <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> um, doubts set in, even though it did move on their fluid suspension technology with hydrogas rather than hydroelastic. But anyway, as we all know, it wasn't as good a car as it should have been. And nevertheless, nevertheless, Sorry? nevertheless, how many have you had? I have had five. <laughs> five. Okay. There must be support groups. Okay, so, 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 so tell, have you had an Allegro with a square steering wheel? I have. You've had it with, with, a, with a Cortex steering wheel? I have. That's fantastic. Yes. Have you had um, Have you had a Vanden Pla? No, nor will I ever. I think it's it's a daft thing to be saying, but it's so ugly. So a Vanden Pla, for those who are not familiar with mid nineteen seventies Allegros, was I mean it was basically it was I mean it's so terrible because in Vanden Pla, for people who know anything about sort of coach building before the war, they were they they were up there with with the best of the most prestigious coach builders. It's where you took your Bentley to have, you know, the raciest Lamour body put on it, and it became a sort of a badge on the back of an Allegro with an appalling fate radiator <laughs> on the front, and and what is it? Just sort of bits of walnut inside and velour and added plushness. Well, uh, I can't believe I'm mounting a defence of this car, <laughs> but, but I'm going to. Um, what you've got to. Uh, uh, recall well, even though it's before your time, is, is that there was the predecessor to that model uh, was that, in fact, they were never called Austin Eleven Hundred or, or, or it wasn't Allegro wasn't in the name of it. It was a so the start the car that started this was the Princess Eleven Hundred, which was a Austin Morris Eleven Hundred finished by Vanden Plas, and it really was in that a part finished. 1100 would be dispatched to the Vandenplatz. This, this, this is not the princess that came later. Um, no, no. no, so, no. So for, so this forget, is the 1100-1300, exactly. which came out in 1962 and was Britain's best-selling car for 10 years. Yeah, um, It's the car that the estate version of which Basil Fawlty thrashes with a branch for its failure to start Yeah, for the 95th time. And um, uh, so somebody had the idea that there might be a market for a very well-finished and appointed small car that might suit people who had previously had a Jaguar, retired, and wanted the same luxury ambience inside, but in a much smaller package. So whilst the car obviously wasn't coach-built because it was bodily almost identical, save for the grille, the interior had Connolly leather, real walnut, uh, West of England cloth headlining, high-quality carpets. So it really was high-quality materials used in it and uh, extra soundproofing. So it was quite refined. And back then, when it came out, 63 or 64 it was a really unusual idea and it sold very well um many of them were automatics because they were bought by uh people who had got bored with changing gear and um so it made sense on paper to do the same with the allegro but whoever styled that and styled is too generous a term that grill on the front end giving a pig ugly car a snap um, <laughs> should have been made to live with it for the rest of their lives um 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. But the funny thing is that it sold quite well and with a massive margin. Um, so it was very profitable. And in fact, the first... And as it, Allegro wasn't in the name, it was called the Vandenplas 1500. Um, the, the first of them were also finished at the Kingsbury Works in London and, you know, to the pretty much the same standard as its predecessor. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how we got onto that. Yeah, no, sorry, I've never owned it, one. It, 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 entirely my fault. Okay, we are, um, as, as ever, time presses onwards, so we're going to have to rattle through a few more. What was the first, the very first BL car that you owned? Well, um, I bought with a friend a non-running Daimler 250 V8. Wow. For £100 from a colleague. That's brave. It was brave and stupid <laughs> in that we had no money, no facilities, no skill with which to fix it up. So again, a Daimler V8 is it's basically the Daimler version of the you know the Inspector Morse Mark II, very famous. That's right. You know, as, with by, a, by bank robbers, all the over Jaguar, the world. yeah, yeah, yeah. But with a, a lovely V8, although I never heard it run. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, uh, about a year later, having paid for it to sit rusting in a lockup, we had to face facts, and we sold it for a hundred quid. So basically, we just shelled out for storage to no end. Um, and that was while I was still at BL, but rather, or in fact, decidedly uh, disloyal was the fact that while I worked at BL, I never actually owned a BL car. Um, and that was, well, for a number of stupid reasons, but one of them was in my naive enthusiasm for the company building a better car i thought i would only drive a car that appeared in the interesting section of car magazines <laughs> good the bad and the ugly and unfortunately nothing that bl made appeared in the interesting section i could remotely afford um so while i should have been driving a mini or an 1100 i actually drove a renault 4 and then a simca 1100 after that and 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 then at one point i bought an absolutely um, wrecked but running Alpha 1750 GTV, which started me off down another avenue over my car buying life. And I remember driving to work in it not long after I got it, and a colleague came up to me as I parked it, and he said, I admire your taste, but not your loyalty. <laughs> which, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, so throw some more at us. Yeah, what yeah, have been the highlights? Um, I didn't buy anything BL for quite a while. I think re what really tipped me into it was a colleague who you might recall, Andrew, called Russell Hayes, who I worked with on Forecar for a while, yeah, and he pointed him, yes. out that you know for the price of um, I don't know a decent Lotus, you could buy um, almost the entire showroom of BL cars from the 1970s and um so you, I, you know princess allegro marina what have you and i unfortunately that idea didn't leave me and um <laughs> i proceeded to live the dream <laughs> so let me fire some cars at you and you tell me whether you own them or not you just mentioned what marina no I, On principle? I mean, it obviously uh, had little going for it, but um, no, I've never owned one, although I have a 
a curious I, I would quite like to own a 1.8 tc which had an mgb engine and was dynamically incapable of handling the power which today i think we would all find a very entertaining car given how homogenized modern cars are but i've never had one of those what a stag no um uh not that they're trouble free but i it's a bit too much of a a cruiser somehow never quite appealed maxi. pretty though it is Ma sorry a maxi no um my mum had one and uh i think that was enough um although i admire many things about it it also lost. did quite well in the london to mexico rally <laughs> um but yes no, I haven't had one of those. So, so what have what have been the highlights then of the <clears throat> the BL cars that you have owned? Um, I've got a Princess, a 1977 Wedge. I've driven it, which you've driven, Andrew, briefly because um, it broke down. Although it was entirely <laughs> my fault that it broke down, um, and that car was sort of tends to be bracketed with the Allegro Marina as a sort of glorious failure, but in fact, it really was a good car. And in comparison tests of the day, when it might be pitted against, say, a Citroen CX, which you know was a really good car, it would be very close to, to beating it. It's incredibly uh, comfortable. So it, it was absolutely competitive. And um, it's what's unusual about it, apart from the styling, which I, I think is one of Harris Mann, who designed it, um, his more successful designs and certainly bold um it's got a fantastic ride its refinement is a, a lot greater than you would expect for a, a, a you know a, a lesser executive car of the time um mine is a six cylinder transverse six cylinder it's a super smooth engine we were trying Not to think was I, was I having a conversation with you about another car with a transverse six cylinder in 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 its nose i think there was a volvo there was, there was an s80 wasn't there or something like that yeah 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 i mean it's an incredibly hard thing to achieve for them those mad enough to want to achieve it because the length of the engine and then the gearbox on the end yeah fitting that between the wheel arches and still having a decent turning circle is extremely difficult so in the in the case of the princess and the Austin 2200 Land Crab that came before it, which also had that powertrain, you end up compromising the design of the cylinder head um, in order to make the engine short enough to fit. Um, gotcha. So it was difficult to get more power out of it than it already had, um, which was a whacking 110 horsepower, but <laughs> more torque in more than 110 pounds foot of torque. But so it's not slow. Um, yeah, but I, I just love its individuality and the bravery of it. And one of the things its predecessor was criticised for, and rightly, was pig-ugly styling. It, it was called the land crab because it resembled one of those scuttling creatures across a beach, Yeah. And uh, but had a lot going for it technically. And the Princess, or 1822 series, as it was called when it came out, um, uh you know, turn that on its head. I mean, it's utterly startling-looking car and absolutely on trend for the mid-1970s. Talking of startling-looking cars, I, yes. I know you have one of these because I've driven that too. You have a TR7. I did. I, oh, you got rid I of sold it. it in the end. Oh, but, okay. um, yes, that, so this was, I guess, on the same theme of realising that you could acquire a showroom's worth of cars for the price of a new one. Um I bought this TR7 fixed head coupe, uh, which to most people would be the ugly one. But to me, I think, well, that's the version with the most startling styling with its flat rear windscreen and turret top. Um, and uh, it's actually structurally very rigid car, or it is before it's uh, started corroding anyway. And this one had done... I don't know, 11,000 miles from new. Yeah. And it was for sale because the chap selling it, I, I felt sorry for him. He, 
he couldn't get out of it very easily anymore. So he was at risk of his getting in a car that would, and it would be a one-way trip. Um, so he sold it. I paid three thousand quid for an eleven thousand mile T O seven, which had had no rust on it, um, and. It's, I mean, it's a funny car. I mean, as it was when it was new, it, it has a fantastic dashboard design. Even by today's standard, it's incredibly well laid out and modern looking. I'm less so now with digital dashes, but it was for a while. Very comfortable car, very good ride. And these are all things you wouldn't necessarily prior, prioritize in a sports car. But on the other hand, it had a pretty gruff engine that didn't like to rev. Um, the short wheelbase meant that it sort of pitched when you accelerated and dived when you braked, especially because the suspension was soft. It handled quite well, but there was always a danger it would tip you into a sudden spin. Um, and yeah, in the end, I just thought, I think I've done this. Do you still <laughs> and, and sold it? Do you still uh, have? I, th I think one of the most underrated cars, and I think we did touch on this a bit um, in the previous podcast we did with you um was the original metro because i think when that came out in 1980 i think i think that that was a yes. world-class product um, it was it was yeah, very competitive so i bought a 1980 metro um which i saw on the verge in a village when i was driving to goodwood I, I, for a brief while i was involved with the goodwood festival of speed and i was going to a creative committee meeting and um uh, and I saw it on the way. And when I got there, a colleague, um, Gary Axon, who's also <laughs> yes. massively into oddball cars, had also spotted this car for sale. And what we ended up talking about was the fact that we both knew it was a very early one because the uh, rear wipers washer jet on the very early metros is mounted below the, wind the rear screen which when you think about it, gives the pump a lot of work to do to push the water uphill, as it were. So after a few months, and, and, they moved and, to and the top so of the tail. It was the location so, of the washer nozzle that gave, you knew that meant it had to be an early one. Indeed. That's, that's quite Such a level of knowledge. <laughs> that is quite a my, level of knowledge. Yeah, of the yeah, old disease. And indeed, <laughs> similarly afflicting, afflicting Gary Axon. But uh, and anyway, I got to this meeting and Gary was moderately interested in it. And somebody else we know, Erin Baker, who was then uh, uh, with The Telegraph, was also, when she heard about it, interested in it because she'd learned to drive on one. Anyway, I bought it for 225 quid. And it, I think it had done 27,000 miles. It was a one litre L in hearing a beige with of course. paprika, as in the spice interior i mean quite a striking color combo and um i ended up spending a bit of money on bodywork it was it wasn't too bad but um and had it for a while and then i sold it to another journalist colleague jamie kitman who lives in new york and so i ended up driving this metro to southampton docks and, and I was instructed to park it next to all these brand new Range Rovers, Jags and Minis that were being shipped to the States and uh, along with this forlorn beige metro. Um, and uh, yes, when Jamie Kipman went to pick it up, he emailed me and said, what tools do I need to bring to get it to go? And I said, well, it should be fine. And in fact, it started first time. There you go. And a couple of days later, he sent me a picture of it outside a New York nightclub parked next to an enormous <laughs> Cadillac Escalade. Um, anyway, he kept it for quite a few years and wrote about it in various magazines. And then he passed it on to his son, Ike, who kept it for a few years. And now it is with a, a BL enthusiast somewhere in the US. And it's probably the most famous metro in America. And indeed, the only. <laughs> How many can there be in so, America? So we we um, are we are running out of time. Um, can you just quickly give us a list of the the handful of, of BL cars that you have at the moment? So the ones I've got now are the Princess. I've kept that. 
um, an Austin 1300 GT, which is um, the least slow version of the <laughs> 1100 1300 series. Um, when it and this is a, I mean, they tarted it up basically in a late 60s style, so it had a vinyl roof, mock alloy wheels, and a sort of racy silver and black metal strip running down the sides. But also, what it also had was an engine almost identical to a Mini Cooper S's. And this package they announced in the advert as the one GT that just had to be. Wow. Um, and back then, there weren't many fake GTs. You know, most of them really were Ferraris. So absurd on one level, but it actually sold very well. It's quite a fun thing to drive, as you will hopefully find out one day, Andrew. But, um, um, yeah. So my dad had one and, you know, lots of stupid nostalgic reasons for having one. So I've got that. I have um, Maestro. And the reason I have one of those is that I actually, in the tiniest way, worked on that before it was launched in product marketing. Does it talk and to you? You might or might not remember that the Maestro was famous or infamous for having on the top models a so-called digital dashboard so it had digital instruments and also a voice synthesizer so it would a voice would issue warnings not warning guarantee about to expire but things like warning handbrake on and to my amazement back then my boss and i were tasked with uh finding a voice to um, announce these assorted warnings. So my boss got a cassette tape from an agency with various actors and actresses enunciating on it. And we picked a woman called Nicolette McKenzie. And uh, I guess to the credit of our colleagues, no one said, why have you picked a woman? Not not one question about that. And... um, Anyway, yeah, so that was one of my tiny half contributions to the Maestro. Anyway, I came across one of these cars with the digital dash quite a few years ago now for 900 quid, 26,000 miles. I just couldn't resist it. So does Nicolette uh, still talk to you? It will still talk, yeah. It all works. Have you been in touch with her recently? Do do we know what happened to Nicolette? Well, the thing is... she has actually been interviewed by a number of our colleagues over the years because of her <laughs> starring, starring role, role in the dashboard of the maestro, much to her amazement. But I've never actually met her or interviewed her. Uh, I, I believe she's still around. I'm not sure how much damage that um, career move did. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, but yes, all that stuff still works. Um, wow. uh, you know. 35 years later um what else do i have uh i still have a rover 75 as mentioned um i have a you're having to look at a piece of paper aren't you i can tell you can't remember how many how many bl cars you've got well i have to look i'm looking at a list now (laughs) andrew so i've got a 2001 mini cooper oh cool which is obviously a bmw era product but yeah it was developed, co-developed by BMW and Rover. Um, and the reason I've got it is you might have heard the Y-Reg Mini Club. Yeah. And basically, the new Mini went on sale in July 2001. That was the year in which there was a massive number plate change, and we went from Y-Reg to 51 plate which meant that nearly all the private buyers wanting a brand new Mini, which was a very sought-after car, waited until September the 1st when the new plate came in, the upshot being that nearly all the Y-Reg Minis were registered by BMW Group or their dealer network because no private individual was going to register on a Y. So there were very few of them, and by definition, they're all low-chassis-number cars, and there's a club for them. Do we know how, how, how many there are? Well, you know, what constitutes a low chassis number? Where, you know, where does it end? You know, is it up to a thousand? I don't know, but mine is 155. Uh, but there, there are a lot, there are about 60 or 70, 80 even that are lower than that. I think they 
because the first 60 odd they d deemed not quite fit for sale and used them for yeah. crash test or development work or whatever um so i don't know it's from around chassis number 62 say i'm, I'm sure i'll be corrected on this but they started to be retailed so they have a following and a, a value but rather like the original mini the very early mini bmw era minis have a few features that were only on the very early cars which makes them all collectible i mean it was amazing i felt how it echoed the original car in that regard and that i guess that's what attracted me to buying one um by by my count do you have one more is there one more on your i've list? got a jaguar xj40 which is the most recent wow acquisition and that um why did i buy one of those i well i was there for the launch i was involved at car magazine with interviewing a lot of the people involved with it i was just sort of fascinated by what they tried to achieve and, and weirdly that car had a semi-digital dash which is not really a very nice thing to look at but it's just interesting so wait, 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 I, which one have you got well it's not a prime choice in a way it because it's a 2.9 auto and that this is the version that norman dewis jaguar's own development driver uh said to the management do we really have to launch this version <laughs> <laughs> or words to that effect because it was just it was just too slow it's only got 165 horsepower but it was done for tax reasons so italy and one or two other mainland europe markets but also it meant that it you know, it was a, a, a an entry-level model that overlapped the top end of the Granada Scorpio and Rover 800 and, range. And, and yours doesn't have, have a digital dash? It does. does. It? it does. That's the point. Ah, it's okay. a 2.9 with a digital dash. It's a sovereign, so it's the higher trim level with sort of inlaid wood and uh, quite a lot of other electric seats and sunroof. and So it's very well equipped. And uh, you basically have a lot of time to enjoy all that because it's not very fast. <laughs> but what drew me to it, and I had no plans to buy one on the day in question, I went to an auction fatefully with a mate, and this car has done 12,000 miles from new. And it is like stepping into a brand new one. Wow. And they're, they're so unloved that there are very few like it. So... I thought, I, even though it's a 2.9, I've got to have this. Um, we've missed another one. I've got a Morris 1100, which I bought well before the 1300 GT. It's the same body. Um, 1966, it's a Mark I. I like Mark Ones because they're as the, they are the design and engineering intent, give or take some cost reductions. And... Um, this, as I've mentioned many a time, it was the best-selling car in Britain for 10 years. And when it came out, was by far the most advanced small family car in the world. Mm. Uh, and it's just to almost totally overlooked. Um, uh, uh, and yet it, it played really quite a role in Britain, motor British motoring history, and would have played a bigger role in Europe were it not for the fact that we weren't in the uh european common market and so there were very big tariffs on british cars um so it didn't really make much sales headway on mainland europe even though it was better than most of what, what you could buy over there at the time what's what's clear to me <clears throat> in all of this um and we must wrap it up we are running out of time it's that um clearly you like bl cars and we know why but you like cars that have a bit of a backstory or something interesting to say about them. It's not purely the way they look or the way they drive. You like the tail, don't you? And that's like, that's a whole other story there because you know I know of some other cars that you have owned, a particularly notorious Citroen, I seem to remember, um, and uh, and something else that I also know that you own at the moment, um, which are very interesting cars with very interesting backstories. Um, but we just haven't got time to talk about them now. No, which is good news because that means you're going to have to come back <laughs> <on> again <laughs> and tell us about yeah. um, yes about the, <laughs> all the other stuff, all the other stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, Richard, we must wrap it up there. But thank you so much for coming on. As Andrew says, let's do it again. Yeah. Um, to everyone listening and watching, thank you for tuning in and make sure that you um, hit the little follow button or the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this or watching this. Um, Richard, thank you again. Let's let's do it again um, in a little while. 
Thanks. Yeah, pleasure. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.